Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. Welcome back. I'm James Scullin, the General Manager of Supply Chain at the Australian Industry Group, and this is Supply Circles, the podcast where I ask supply chain implementers, innovators, and influencers, how can we in Australia create supply chains that are resilient and sustainable at a time when we're implementing the challenges of the three Ds? You know them, digitalization to keep up with our peers and our industry, decarbonisation to meet our legal requirements and targets by 2050 and even earlier in some states, and ongoing disruptions which come in many shapes, not only pandemics but also industry disruptions, product disruptions, logistical interruptions and challenges, global inflation, geopolitics, oh, the list goes on. Each fortnight, we delve into all sections of the end-to-end supply chain. We look into the 3Ds. We look at the issues from different angles. I get to chat with fascinating and interesting and knowledgeable people, and we have some fun along the way. So welcome to today's Supply Circles. Today, let's talk about operational excellence in sustainable supply chains. What if I told you that there were ways to improve your operational performance, reduce your costs, improve your quality, and increase your bottom line while also improving your major buyer relationships? Sounds too good to be true? Does it sound like the promise of every overpay consultant you've ever heard? Well, our guest today has built a global business in just 20 years from his base in Melbourne by assisting businesses all over the world to do just that. He says the message is right. You just have to ask the right people and implement the right actions. My guest is Tim McLean, the founder of TXM Lean Solutions. Hello, Tim. Yeah, hi, James. How, how are you today? I, I bet you are just busy. If you build a business that fast in such a short time, life must uh, be pretty crazy each day. Well, 20 years doesn't um, seem d- doesn't seem like a short time. It seems like quite a long time now, but um, <laughs> we have some very good people that run different parts of our business. So, um I am very busy, but um, I uh, I have great people I can rely on around the world that um, lead our businesses internationally. I want to pick up that theme in a minute, but tell us the backstory. How did it come about? What 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 problem did you solve? What uh, what was the issue that you thought you might be able to add some value to? And how did it come about? I guess. Well, I uh, I brought my New Zealand taxpayer funded engineering degree, chemical engineering degree, to Australia in 1988. And um, Thank you, New Zealand. I um, started working in manufacturing and at, after two years in what were kind of um, in a process improvement role, so initially implementing what, are called, what was called total quality management or the work of a guy called W. Edwards Deming, who was one of the first to publicise what the Japanese were doing in their factories. Uh, and he taught the Japanese a lot of those techniques as well. Um, I got made a plant manager at the tender age of 24 and then for the next 16 years ran factories. And just around turning 40 is always a bit of an inflection point in life, isn't it? I um, uh, got offered a job in Europe, um, had small, very small children, decided not to take that and uh, set this business up. And uh, around the same time, a, another fellow who was ex-Ford um, started up his business and my business was called TXM. His was called Lean Solutions. Um, we worked independently for a couple of years and then met up and started collaborating in about 2006, formed a joint venture in 2009, 
brought in a third business partner who was someone who I'd uh, worked with um, previously in 2012 and we've just grown from there. And um, I think what we learned early on is um, largely the back in the late 2000s, um, and the dying days of the Howard era, they, they launched what's now called the Entrepreneurs Program. It's been through a couple of iterations and different names, but program stayed the same, which was a program to support small and medium-sized enterprise. And we saw that straight away as an opportunity to launch our business and uh, apply our experience working in big companies like Ford and PPG and uh, Boeing and uh, help use that expertise to help growing SMEs. And so that's how we got going with SMEs and um, uh, started getting some great results and a great reputation. And that then led from Melbourne to to Sydney and elsewhere around Australia. And then uh, connections led us to China. And then in about 2010 um, and then 2016, uh, we've got connections from Australia led us into both the UK and North America. And then our UK work has led us into France, Sweden, Germany, Poland, um, and uh, North American work led us, or US work led us into Canada. And now we're just about to uh, launch in the Caribbean. So um, uh, we've worked, I think, last count, 25 countries um, around the world. It's a fantastic result, isn't it, 25? And, uh, and I was with the uh, Entrepreneurs Program or its predecessor for over a decade and worked with you guys very closely for a long a long time and I know your work uh, well. But 25 countries in a short period of time is tough to do. I'm always interested in the the managerial side of that. How do you manage your business here in Australia whilst – also having to look after interests overseas. How do you do both? Well, I think, um, you know, my, my view to anyone looking to work overseas is the um, best advice you'll ever get about a foreign market comes from someone who's lived and grown up in that foreign market. So you need to get over there and you need to find at least one good person that you can trust and that, that, that is highly motivated to make your business successful. And we've managed to do that in each of our overseas markets. So um, we've got outstanding people. And then we can build a business around that person to some extent. So, you know, Jim Collins will say is uh, get the right people on the bus first. And I think that's certainly the case in an international market. The other thing is we've put a lot of effort into, you know, over 20 years we've really learned the kind of person we need as a consultant to work with clients. We've actually now, you know, we've really documented that. We've got a very structured recruitment process. We know exactly the kind of person that we want, where they come from, and what kind of skills they need to have. And we've been successful around the world at finding the right kind of people to actually do the delivery. So both finding people to manage the business and people to actually make the difference to the customer. And then we've defined our methodology and um employed a full-time operations manager whose job is to really bring is recruit new consultants and bring them up to speed so they do things our way yeah there's that's the idea of having someone who's pulling the whole thing together you know a yeah. chief operating officer of some sort uh, and repeatable systems that you can you can yeah. lean back onto when it starts to get a little bit tricky or a bit confusing 
uh, and then choose the right people. Let's come back to those those concepts. Uh, the, the business uh, is promoted as uh, um, a TXM Lean Solutions is an international operational excellence and lean consulting company. Uh, what's operational excellence? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> and, and lots of people try to define those terms. Like lean is something that's very clearly defined in that lean is a set of methodologies that's come out of the Toyota production system and out of the whole wave of improvement techniques that were imported let's say, re-imported from Japan because Japan imported them probably mainly from the United States. That's a good story, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> imported them earlier than that from the UK and, and they've evolved and been improved over the years. Um, but the operational excellence is just the achievement of excellent operational performance and through all the different techniques. So we think in terms of a management system uh, for manufacturing and distribution businesses that Lean is the most effective and practical and comprehensive set of tools and and, and uh, philosophies available to manage a, operationally manage a, um, a particular manufacturing business um, and a supply chain. Um, whereas, you know, other techniques such as Agile, such as um, uh, Industry 4 uh, are all driving towards um, operational excellence. And so we need to be able to look at bringing all those techniques together to achieve excellent performance. And really operational excellence is what you want it to be. So it depends on how you define it, whether you define it against uh, your industry and your level of competitiveness or whether you define it against um, exter other external benchmarks or whether you define it as just getting better every year or continuous improvement as we talk about. You've always been, in my knowledge, you've always been very uh, excited by the opportunities of, of, of better factory layout, of, of better laying out the physical part of an operation, but also paying attention to uh, the systems and processes that are in place. Yeah. Is the physical layout of a business the starting point of operational excellence? That's a good question. Uh, I think, no, it's not the starting point. I think the starting mm. point is having a clear business strategy about where you want to take the business. So, you know, people, you know, we, we get a little bit nervous when people come to us and they say they want to be lean or they want operational excellence because you, the first question to ask is why? So why do we want, why do we need, not want, why do we need, why must we improve our business? What are the mm -hmm. key factors that we need to change? Often it is. What are the strategic capabilities that we don't have now that we need to develop in order to deliver uh, our strategic goals? So it might be we need to reduce our lead time. It might be we need to reduce our costs. It might be we need to improve our quality. It might be we need to be able to offer a customized product, whatever it is. So whatever the, once we've set our business plan and our strategy, what does that imply for our ability to deliver? What do we need to do differently? What are the standards we have to achieve? What are the metrics we have to achieve? And that's where you start. And that's also where you start in designing a factory. So you don't start in designing a factory saying, here's the building, here's the machinery, how do we fit it together? You start with saying, where is our business going? What will that mean operationally? And what facilities are therefore flowing from that? What facilities are we going to need to deliver that? And then the layout, once you've designed the, the manufacturing, the concept of your manufacturing, how you're going to deliver, 
the layout tends to fall out of that quite quickly. Now, a good layout then enables you, will tend to drive, and we've, we've just I've just been through two new factories that have just been finished, uh, just setting up where we've done the layout, one in Orange, New South Wales, one in Melbourne. And you can see immediately that the better layout is going to give them better production flow. The better layout is going to prevent them uh, creating massive build-ups of work in progress. It's going to highlight where there's problems in the flow and where there's bottlenecks. And so immediately a good layout is going to lend, you know, your business, it will lend towards having greater operational efficiency. It, and obviously also it'll eliminate things like excessive motion or excessive transport of goods or double handling. But it will sort of set the scene for putting in place better better production systems to drive better flow, lower, shorter lead time and so forth. I think it's a great answer because often what you hear about uh, continuous improvement and, and lean and, and, and operational excellence is, is the the whys, the five whys or whatever, you know, but, but get your why right first. Mm. It's a strategy thing, isn't it? Yeah. Look, a lot of businesses don't do that. A lot of businesses will come and say, you know, my mate down the road has done lean and I think I should do it. Or um, big corporates will come with a, we're going to do a, a lean initiative. And if people can't connect, you know, I was a factory manager for 16 years. It's an incredibly tough job. You're under, you know, you're managing usually 60%, 70% of the workforce in a manufacturing business. You've got that challenge as well as the fact that you've got demanding, you know, demands from the sales force, from the customer via the sales force. So you're, you're caught in the middle and you just don't have time to do things for the sake of them. So if you're going to do something to change your operation, it needs to be something that will help make your operation better, that will solve your problem today and in the immediate future. And if it's not going to solve my problem in today and the immediate future, I'll do it because my boss tells me to do it, but my heart won't be in it. And even if I do it as the factory manager, how am I going to motivate the supervisors to do it? How am I going to motivate the operators to do it if no one really knows why it's essential for our business? This phrase is one of the the, the, the most favourite parts of, of this conversation for me, which is people. And I said it would come back to people. Um, you know, Deming, for example, one of the most famous uh, sort of you know advocates for this, uh, his theory of management details the steps that are taken to transform the company's culture. There's a theory that maintains it's insufficient to simply solve a problem. You have to fix the culture of continuous improvement. Uh, and other, other, you know, theorists in this area, Ishikawa being one, was sort of saying it's quality circles. You do it from the bottom up. Do you see it as a people issue? I, look, it always is. Operational excellence. I like One of, the, one of the, the facts I like to quote is that when I ran factories, it, all, it was always hard to get good operators, you know, reliable operators. You know, the problem was always operators. And when I talk to a lot of factory managers, they'll tell me, oh, you know, operators, you know, you can get what you can get, you know, they're, hmm. they're not motivated, they're not productive, all this, they make too many mistakes. And I've been doing this for 18 years. At last count, we're just short of 1,000 companies that we've helped across 25 uh, um, countries, so more than a thousand projects, well more than a thousand projects. I can't pinpoint a single project where the frontline staff were the problem, were the barrier to change. Not one. So the problem always starts with and finishes with leadership. 
And by leadership, I mean everybody from the leading hand to the CEO. And so the reason that Deming became focused on on leadership and leadership alignment and the reason that, um, uh, you know, the, the lean lean thinking guys, Jim Womack, talked about lean leadership and the reason why there's so many books on lean leadership, you can go and look at almost any management change program in, uh, in, in, in business, whether it's safety, whether it's uh, corporate governance, what, whether it's uh, the whole ECG thing, it all comes back to the leaders. So the leaders have to walk the talk, they have to demonstrate, they have to believe in what's being implemented and their, their behaviours have to uh, reflect what they believe in. So a key mistake that people make then is to say lean's all about leadership. Well, yes, it is, but then so is any change in in business. So lean is about lean and you need leadership support, but you shouldn't turn lean into just a leadership exercise, right. you know, or a leadership training or development exercise. It's about the fundamental way that you design and manage your process. And it's about to, to deliver that change, you need leadership alignment right through the organisation. One of the nicest stories, I, I remember the story just came to my head while you were giving that answer, a story I think from Toyota where they were saying that if a, a leader, a manager, a, a whoever, a person with responsibilities uh, walk past a bit of rubbish on the factory floor, that they should pick it up and, and, and resolve it, throw it away, you know, pick up the rubbish, not say to someone on the floor, you should pick that up. In other mm. words, demonstrate the leadership. Don't just uh, don't just instruct the leadership. And it's those sort of small things that are so important if you're trying to get to excellence. I think was the basic concept. Is that how you go about trying to explain leadership to people? You know, enact it. Well, there's a couple of levels to that example. The you know, there's the saying the, the from our former head of army that the standard you walk by is the standard you accept. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. And people in organisations are incredibly sensitive to what leaders actually do. So if your office is a mess and you walk past rubbish and you even leave rubbish lying around, then you can't expect people to maintain a high standard. But there's another deeper level. There's no, there's no, there's no credit in do what I say, not what I do. You, you have to do and say, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So there's another deeper level. I worked back in the 90s. I worked in the packaging industry. It was the first time um, I was really involved where we really drove 5S in, an, in a factory. And we had four departments. Um, and uh, three of the departments got 5S really well. But one of our departments, which was the PET bottle manufacturing department, didn't. So we just couldn't, we weren't sustaining the, um, the results and we, you know, having a lot of chats with the leaders and the, the super manager of that area and the supervisors and, and it just wasn't giving us the kind of performance and it, and it was noticeable within this factory that this area was um, not up to standard. So the question then was to ask why. So rather than, you know, beat the drum, you have to clean up, you have to clean up, you have to clean up. We, the question was asked why. So we started mm -hmm. looking at what was it? What was the rubbish? What was the stuff that was being left around? And because it was a very high volume business, we were producing a pallet about every three minutes. So a pallet of finished goods about every three minutes. So broken, broken pallet boards. What do you do with broken pallet boards? There's nowhere for them to go. Broken pallets. Um, we would do, we would stack the layers of bottles and then put a, a wooden, uh, 
layer pad and top frame on the top of it and then strap it. And you would get the odd broken top frame. There was nowhere to put it. Just lean it up against the robot cage, you know. Uh, strapping, just kick it underneath the conveyor. So what we did is we then recognised a, a lot of this was offcuts, broken packaging, this kind of thing. So mm-hmm. our material handler designed a special uh, two-sided pallet uh, stack um, to put in broken pallets and broken pallet boards um, because often if they were rented pallets, they still had to be returned to the um, to the person they rented, a company they rented off. Um, we had special bins set up for the things like offcuts of strapping or um, and, you know, a place for broken yeah. layer pads. And the minute we took the time to understand why the rubbish was being put where it was, then we um, started to see an improvement. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. that, you know, so one of the things is, you know, the standard you walk past, the standard you expect. But another key behaviour of a lean leader is to go see and ask why mm, mm. and then show respect by actually listening and then make the improvement. It's a Socratic approach. It's the Socrates of asking uh, asking questions to understand, to yeah. truly understand, not not just to – sometimes when you ask a question, people think you are having a go at them by the question you ask. But in this mm. scenario, it really is to truly understand. To get to what I think Twitter calls the real reality, which is a funny term. Yeah. Sometimes you have to actually stop yourself and sort of almost go into a state of meditation and clear your head and say, what's really going on here? Just mm-hmm. observe. And, you know, this is what often we as consultants can do quite quickly that people who are involved in the cut and thrust of a business can't do is actually step back and say, why are we doing that? You know, why, why, what's the reason that we have to do it that way? And when people can't explain it, that's when often you find a good opportunity to make improvements. How has it changed over the years? You've been you've been doing this for a while now. I think you said twenty years on the factory floor, and now twenty years uh, advising. How has it all changed? Certainly, manufacturing has changed. It's become much more advanced manufacturing, uh, digitalized, decarbonized, all that sort of stuff has come in. How has the the aim for excellence changed, or the or the process for achieving excellence changed? My view is that the fundamentals haven't changed all that much. Okay. So the issues that I go and see in factories today, I can say were similar to the fact issues I faced in the factories in that I worked in in the late eighties. So you know, at a at a broad sense, okay, we've got more advanced technology, we've got more software and diagnostics and all that kind of thing, but the fundamental problems. So, for instance, you know, with new facilities. Um, poor handover of technology from installation to commissioning, you know. And so then the technology not working correctly, not achieving its desired performance, um, not people then reacting and um, shooting from the hip rather than getting to the root causes of problems and, in fact, making the problem worse than better. All of those things still happen today. The issues around leadership suppose um, in Australia, one of the key changes is that um, uh, unions were almost uh, universal in um, manufacturing when I started out. Um, mm-hmm. Now it's very rare that we, you know, only really in the what I'd call legacy industries, which is sort of big end of town, factories that are, you know, going back more than 40 years, will you get heavy active unionism? And And if anything, particularly the unions that have been historically active in the 
manufacturing industry actually know that they it's not in their interest to make uh, the businesses they work with uncompetitive uh, because that only just leads to them and their, them out of members their members out of a job and not paying dues. So, you know, generally you've you know while there's still a bit of militism militantism out there in manufacturing, it's nothing like it was. Um, so that's a that's a change um, uh, that's significant. Um, what about international standards? When when quality came in, or when I was first got became aware of quality, we were talking about international standards and making sure that we did everything against a set process. Is that still the best way of doing it? And does it really get us to to quality, or has that thinking changed over the years? No, I don't think. I don't think. If we're talking about the ISO nine thousand and one series, I don't think that's ever got us to quality. Are you being controversial? No, no, I'm not. And I don't think even the people who ordered that would say they would be conscious of saying that just because you've got a standard doesn't mean the quality of your product is good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. And there's disclaimers all over, you know, and rules about how you're allowed to use, for instance, the ISO nine thousand and one mark if you you know whichever of whichever accreditation body you use that not to assure your quality um i i think that uh, are you saying are you saying that the standard if you hit, hit that stand, the international standards you, you've got a reliable product it's not necessarily a quality product is that the point no you've got a reliable process reliable process i should say yeah not necessarily a quality product yeah you've got a process so understand the history of iso 9001 iso 9001 evolved from a standard that was developed by the british department of defense for procurement so right so their problem was is they didn't really know what they were buying and so they developed a standard that if you were going to sell something to the department of defense the Department of Defence and the Department of Defence would have some confidence that you had some basic processes in place to ensure that it was control over the quality, control over what went into the product, you know, the inputs, that you could have some traceability, that there were some procedures being followed and so forth. Now, that standard for procurement evolved into what became ISO 9001. And really, while it's evolved and it's taken in things like corrective and, corrective and preventive action, it's become somewhat less bureaucratic over the years. You know, it used to be when I first did it back in about 1990, the document control requirements on um, ISO 9001 were just incredible. I remember them well and horrible, yes. And um, so they've, they've eased a lot of those things. And it, look, it does give you a, a framework. It, uh, it forces you to think about, some things that are good to have, like a quality policy and procedures for quality and how you handle returns and your quality of your inputs and so forth. But in itself, you can you can be ISO 9001 accredited and still have terrible quality. You'll just be able to hopefully document why you've got terrible quality. All right, just to wrap up this section, here's, here's a hard question. How do I know I've got quality then? If it's not the standard, how do I know I've got quality? Well, quality is defined by once upon, someone told me many years ago. Quality is defined by your customer. How does my customer know that I've got good quality? Yeah. Well, I think um, it's meeting the expectations of the customer, mm -hmm. and so um, the product you're making certain promises in terms of the performance of the product. The product has to perform to that level. Um, there'll be expectations around the presentation of the product. So, for instance, a car that was sold with a whole lot of dinks, dents and scratches on the paintwork would still be very drivable, but it wouldn't be acceptable to the customer.
right. you know, um, and still do the fundamental function. And so it's really, I think, quality is defined by the customer and what and the, and and what the customer customers collectively, meaning the market, mm. expects. Mm. This is a great chat. All right, when we come back, let's talk some more about uh, other parts of your business, perhaps. Yeah. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. I'm talking to Tim McLean and we're talking about uh, quality. How, what, what have we learned about business and operational excellence during the pandemic and the recent um, uh, interruptions? I mean, we had a lot of problems with inventory and all sorts of stuff. What, what did you learn from that, from that experience? I think um, I read a very interesting article um, um, by McKinsey uh, right at the start of the pandemic or not long after the start of the pandemic. And they did a study of, um, I think, 600 supply chain managers globally. And um, those supply chain managers reported a major disruptive event in the supply chain approximately every 3.6 years. So while the pandemic was the biggest disruption that we've had, we've also had disruption from things like uh, 9-11, the Fukushima earthquake, Obviously, the war in Ukraine, uh, particularly for people in Europe, has been quite disruptive. And so one of the lessons from that is that you need – there's a couple of key takeouts. One is the supply chains that we've built in the past 20 years, which have generally involved sourcing products from the opposite side of the world, are very risky. And they're risky on a couple of levels. One is they're risky because of the inherent risk in the countries that we're sourcing from. And they're also risky by the sheer and and by the countries through which the goods must transit. And they're also risky by the sheer distance and length of time. So the longer your goods are on the water, the greater the chances something can go wrong. Or the longer the lead time from when you place an order when the goods are received, the greater the risk that something could go wrong. As well, um, the longer the lead time, the greater the amount of inventory that you need to allow for um, variation and, you know, what I call business as usual variation. So variation in demand and variation in supply. But the more exposed you are with um, um, if something goes seriously wrong in the supply chain, and as I said, that happens every 3.6 years on average. So what I think businesses need to do is think about realistically where are they most exposed so what are the key inputs to their business where if they were out of that input for more than a month that their business would suffer severe damage and then they need to think about how do they because uh, not everything is in that category so for instance um steel is not in that category. Steel, you can generally source locally. Timber, you can generally source locally. While it was short supply, um, it's not like it's impossible supply. Um, not like 12 months, not like 16 weeks lead time turns to 52 weeks is what 
people experience. Well, we saw that in uh, silicon chips, particularly in the in the car industry and in the gaming industry, where it blew out to, to 18 months from a few days to 18 months. Yeah, yeah and so um, it's about working out what are those key commodities and then deciding a strategy. Do I bring, do I bring the production in-house? Do I bring the production close to home? Um, do I put in place um, strategic inventory? Some people call it just-in-case inventory. I think strategic inventory. Um, and how much of that do I put in? You know, I can't put in a year's inventory on the floor because I might get stuck with it. And, you know, I've got to balance the risk of that inventory against the risk of a short shortage. And realistically, how long would the shortage be? So um, I think that's brought home that need to maybe do a bit more of contingency planning, business continuity planning. The other thing that was interesting is that um, we had a classic bullwhip effect in the supply chain. So what is generally well known is that there was a shift in consumer expenditure from services to goods. So if you look at the consumption of goods and the consumption of services across all the major Western markets, you would see that the consumption of services went down probably by 30%. The consumption of goods went up by 20%. The, the result of uh, being at home, basically, people couldn't go anywhere, so they didn't, weren't buying services, but they were stuck at home, so they were buying stuff. Buying buy stuff, you know, new furniture, clothing, whatever. And that then flows through a whole heap of markets, and um, what that does increase demand. And there isn't 20% of slack capacity in most supply chains. So what then they did was increase sudden increase in demand, increase lead times. So what then happens is when your lead times increase, people reset their safety stock. So they increase their stock levels because now I'm dealing with something that's going to take six months to come rather than 12 weeks. That then, what does that do? That immediately creates orders for additional inventory. So I've got this real demand of say 20% and then I'm going to add, let's say another 20 or 30% of stock building demand. So now my suppliers are really under the pump. So now what's happened is that the suppliers have responded to that. They've put in place additional capacity, additional shifts, ramped up production. And those lead times of that have blew out to, say, 12 months are suddenly back to three months and all the stocks arrived. And if I was a very clever man, I would have bought a lot of warehouse space in sort of the beginning of 2022, rented a lot of warehouse space and sat there and waited because everybody is looking for warehouse space now because they're all over stock. And now, of course, they're going to stop ordering. And that big signal will go back up the supply chain and demand's falling. Suppliers will shed capacity. And then the supply chain will probably tighten up again at the end of this year. Beautifully explained. It's about the fourth time we've talked about the bullwhip because it's a big issue in supply chain. But that's a, a, a beautifully, beautiful way of explaining it. It is, uh, we have seen, of course, a, a shortage of warehousing. And the other thing we've seen is a shortage of pallets because those warehouses are full yeah. of pallets. So rather than bouncing around in the system, they're all sitting in warehouses waiting for the stock to get moved. We're also seeing, yeah. uh, you know, that changes the balance sheet when you've got a massive increase in, in your stock. Uh, yeah. The other thing that just out of interest, just uh, because you mentioned it, the AR group research tends to show that uh, we're seeing businesses there's a, there's a lot of talk about onshoring to begin with, bringing it all back home, but we're an island. We can't bring it all yeah. back home. And neither can America, by the way. So we're seeing French-shoring and reshoring. So, uh, sorry, French-shoring and near-shoring. So uh, bringing it either close, uh, buying it from someone nearby, say Vietnam as opposed to Europe, or a, a good friend who we know is not going to have um, geopolitical issues. 
I wanted to talk to you about your international business. Uh, you were just recently overseas um, and you went to some trade shows. I, I think I saw um, a trade shows worthwhile. How do, you, how do you make them effective? How do you turn trade shows from casual conversations into uh, invoiced work? Look, they, if they weren't work worthwhile, people wouldn't spend hundreds and thousands of dollars. Bloody good, bloody good junket, Tim. Bloody good junket. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. So the reality is, um, they're very, very. I find tr- like we we go to trade shows because people, uh, and particularly business owners of small or medium sized companies, um, they attend trade shows because they want to improve their operation. They want to improve their efficiency. And usually they're thinking of buying new equipment or automation. Okay. They want to see what's out there. Or they want to or often they've actually they know what's out there, but they want to see it in the, in real life and 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 watch it operate and talk to people oh, about how yeah. it operates. And, and and compare and compare. Because yeah. they're in that mindset about how do they improve their business, um, that's a good mindset for us to have a conversation with them as well. And so while they may not be able to achieve uh, afford that million dollar piece of equipment for a fraction of that cost we can probably deliver them an even bigger benefit and maybe they can buy that piece of equipment next year that they want um so for us we get to meet uh particularly small or medium-sized business owners and one thing i haven't uh mentioned which i think is quite important for your owner your your audience because it's australian is we often beat up on ourselves in Australia about how we're behind and backwards and all that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, we get the universities telling us how our management is not up to scratch. I can tell you that if I worked and in, walked into a machine shop or a sheet metal shop or an injection molding shop in France or in Germany or in Britain or in the US, frankly, I would expect to see pretty much the same things as I would see in an equivalent shop in Australia. Um, that really the issues that growing small or medium-sized companies in particular face are common around the world, um, you know, and so it's really that the owners start off with a great product, they grow their business, and then they um, find that they've got a much larger team of people, more complex business, and their business processes and the systems of managing people are not quite up to um what they need to run a bigger business and and it becomes that the operational limitations of their business their processes and their systems and their ability to get the best out of people becomes a constraint on growth and that's an issue that i see i you know i can tell you i could see that in birmingham as much as i could see it in uh uh columbus ohio as much as we see it in um in dalby queensland you know, it's a common issue around around the world with growing SMEs. Um, but to come back to the trade show point, um, people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on trade show stands. The big the big players spend hundreds of thousands. They're not going to put something on a trade show stand that they think is not relevant and is not going to sell. So if you want to get a good idea of what technology is out there and the development of technology, I find trade shows are really good because you know, the stuff that's there is there because the people putting it there have spent a lot of money and they believe that it will sell. And so, um, and it will get the attention of potential buyers. And so you really, you hear a lot of theory about technology. What you see in technolo- in um, trade shows is often the current state of reality. I like it. 
makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of you make a lot of sense. It's been good having you on. What have you learned from your from your recent trips to 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 Europe and to to Great Britain? They're they're going through Brexit and they're they've got the Ukraine energy crisis. What have you learned that you yeah. can bring back to Australia and, and help the Australian businesses? Um, well, as I said, what I've learned is that the problems are similar. So we're not worse or better than, you know, there's good businesses and bad businesses in in Europe and in the North America and in China and, and elsewhere as there is here. You know, I like to say that one of the worst run engineering businesses I've ever dealt with was in Munich. You know, um, so everybody has this holds Germany up on a pedestal. And yes, the Germans have an amazing manufacturing base and do some incredible things. Doesn't mean they know everything and doesn't mean that, you know, like for like businesses are going to be so much better in Germany than they will be here. Um, the And that the Germans have got something that, you know, fundamental about their thinking in manufacturing that is, is cultural. It's not, you know, just as lean isn't inherently Japanese, um, you know, it's about those companies that applied it. You know, it's about Toyota and, and to some extent yeah. some of the other uh, Japanese car and, and electronics companies. It's not something that requires Japanese culture or Japanese language to understand. Um, so other thing, in terms of current state, you know, where things are at the moment, I would say that uh, my my guess is that things are not, I, I would things are not going to turn out as badly in Europe as people were expecting. I think even in the UK, it's possible that they might avoid, an, avoid a recession. The UK, um, Brexit's a complete mess, um, and there's a lot of buyer's regret in the UK community about Brexit uh, because it's something that's giving them quite a few headaches and it's very hard to see um, uh, why uh, what benefits it's delivering. Um, and that's a unique UK problem. But in the rest of Europe, the energy crisis over the winter was nowhere near as bad as expected. I don't believe that France ended up having any power cuts, even though they predicted they were going to have 12. Um, once they get their nuclear power back on stream again, they won't have a, a big issue. Uh, the, the Germans and the Spanish have done a great job in terms of bringing more LNG you know, uh, on stream. Yeah. And so um, while things aren't ro- perfect and, and people are facing large energy price increases, um, generally things are not as bad as people uh, expected them to be. The common thread around um, all the Western world is that unemployment is very low and the biggest problem that businesses face is recruiting people. Now, it's hard to conceive in an environment like that that you'll have a recession because recessions are usually associated with unemployment and that the growth in unemployment tends to amplify the recession because people stop spending because they're worried about their jobs. But there's no reason for anyone to be worried about their jobs in most markets now. It is softening a bit. My sense in Australia is that it is softening slightly, but and maybe unemployment will creep back up a little bit from the very, very low levels it is now over the rest of this year. But... Um, uh, I don't think we're going to have an economic crisis unless, say, we get a multiplier effect from the problems at Credit Suisse and Silicon Valley Bank. That's the one thing that could really upset the apple cart. But generally, people in Europe are just getting on with it. They're saying, look, you know, everybody's preaching doom and gloom. We've got a business to run. We're going to make decisions. We're going to invest. We're going to move on. And, and that seemed like a, a broad 
sense of the businesses I was talking to. Uh, there certainly wasn't people that were like between last quarter of last year, people were very, very hesitant. And we had we had huge problems with people not making their mind up about whether they're going to do something or not do something. And that was something we picked up talking to other people in our industry and other industries was a universal thing. People were just not making decisions because there was too much uncertainty around. It does seem that they've moved through that and people are now getting on with business. Are they further ahead uh, with decarbonisation and digitalisation uh, than, than we are? Uh, um, I don't, it, it depends where you go. Like if you're talking going into a Volkswagen factory or a, you know, a Airbus factory or some giant operation, the answer is, is yes. Um, and um, we work with a number of um, European, big European companies, and they are very, very serious about their decarbonisation plans. It's not just lip service and spin doctoring. It's, you know, it's being cascaded through the organisation of thou shalt reduce your energy, thy, thy energy consumption. It's not an option. Uh, and that's been accelerated because of the energy yeah. crisis. Everybody's realised that there's an economic as well as a environmental reason to reduce the reliance on en- reduced energy consumption and reduce the reliance on fossil fuels. Um, yeah, it's really hopped into their head, hasn't it, that... Uh... Uh, yeah. Single source use of energy is not really the best way to go. If you can find renewable ways, it's a better commercial outcome rather than just yeah. environmental. In, in, in small and medium sized land, I don't see that much difference mm-hmm. um, between Australia and between um, you know European manufacturers. Um, but um, interesting. One of the things that I see, which is hard for us, but um, you know, the UK is a good example. Um, companies that are very specialised, so they're very good at one thing, you know, so they're in a niche and Germany's famous for this, for having these Mittelstand companies that are, are global players in a specialised niche. And again, you see that in the UK and in France. And we do have some good examples of that. So probably one of the best examples in Australia would be Anchor, who make machine tools down in Melbourne, and they're a world leader in CNC grinding Machines and I regularly see them at trade shows in the Northern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have many players like that, and we haven't. We, I think more of our businesses need to think about the potential for exporting their product and and um, becoming the world leader in something in their particular niche, which is possible to do now because of the, you know, the shrinking of the world with yeah. e-commerce and. Um, and the internet. It's been a fascinating conversation. I think we have to get you back on in about a year's time and say what's happening now overseas, particularly if you're expanding. It's, um, it's been great, Tim. How do people find out more about you and, and TXM? So we've got a very comprehensive website, txm.com, and uh, people are welcome to email me at tim.mclean at txm.com. I'm sure you'll put that up on your um, yeah, we'll put that. podcast. We'll do. Um, but yeah, if you go to txm.com, you'll find heaps of information, case studies, blogs. We have an e-news that we send out every month that has articles and videos and, you know, just general information that we, we listen to our clients and we hear what they're talking to us about. And then we try and post content that's relevant to what they're talking about. And you walk the talk. Way to go. Thank you, Tim. What a great, what a great episode. Well, that's it for another episode of Supply Circles. Thanks again to everyone who's given us uh, feedback. 
It's always a great pleasure to hear your thoughts and, and in particular, I like getting your compliments. Thanks very much. If you have any feedback on today's interview with Tim or ideas for the show, or if you just want to give some feedback, hit me up at uh, james.scotland with one T, james.scotland at aigroup.com.au or on my LinkedIn page. I'd love to hear from you. And we'll be back in a fortnight with more insights into the keys to building sustainable supply chains. Thanks for joining me. I'm James Scotland. Bye for now.